Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 23rd. I'm Andrew Walworth. We are now just 11 days away from the 2020 election, although more than 50 million votes have already been cast, so voting is well underway. Last night, America was treated to the last of the presidential debates, where Joe Biden and Donald Trump squared off in a format designed to increase civility and adult discourse. And the October surprises just keep coming, the latest being what the president called the laptop from hell for the Biden campaign, a trove of emails and text messages that raise questions about the Biden family's web of businesses and foreign connections, even as Joe Biden issued a blanket denial that both he and his son have done nothing illegal. We'll talk about all this and look at the most recent polls. Are they tightening? What is happening in the key swing states? And we'll also look at some new numbers from the Gallup organization about voters' attitudes towards the economy and their own personal well-being. Joining me are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Mohammed Yunus, editor-in-chief at Gallup and host of the Gallup podcast. So, Tom, let me start with you. President Trump came into last night's debate, the underdog, at least according to the Real Clear uh, polling average. I think he's still down about 7.9 points in the national numbers. What were your impressions of last night and uh, who came out ahead? I think both men uh, made their points. I mean, the debate started off with five to 10 minutes on coronavirus, which is Trump's weakest issue. And Biden, I thought, did a pretty effective job at trying to continue to lay the blame on Donald Trump. Trump had some moments there where it was okay, but I thought that the longer the debate went on, the stronger Trump got in terms of his hitting Biden over and over again on the fact that, you know, you've been in politics. You've been in Washington for 47 years. You didn't do this. Why why didn't you do this when you were vice president for eight years? And then even more toward the end when they were talking about, you know, fracking and energy and the oil industry, you know, I think Trump landed some blows there. And and that's his strongest issue is is his handling of the economy still. And so to the extent he was able to really leverage that, uh, I thought he scored some points. But at the end of the day, no no dramatic moment that I think really swayed a whole lot of voters in, in one direction or another. Certainly, Trump's performance this time was better than last time around. And, you know, there's some suggestion that his new demeanor, if there were some Republicans who were sort of squishy and on the fence, that this might have drawn them back to him. But we'll have to wait and see whether that actually turns out to be true or not. And so, Carl, it was a different debate. Did the right questions get asked? And were you satisfied with what you heard from the candidates? And how do you rate the debate overall? Uh, Well, I was the opposite of satisfied. Scoring the debate, I found myself you know, measuring which one of these candidates was the least offensive. At some point, I googled Kristen Welker, the moderator, to see if she was 35, so I could write her in as a write-in candidate on my ballot in Virginia. She's 44, so I could do that, although maybe I'll vote for Larry Hogan. But in terms of scoring it, I think Tom's exactly right, which is that I don't. I didn't see anything that would change anyone's minds last night. And David Axelrod, who was on CNN, now David Axelrod is not a nonpartisan person. He was Barack Obama's campaign strategist and close ally and friend for years. But he said, when you're ahead, a draw means you win. And he's talking about Joe Biden being ahead in the polls. And all Biden had to do was hold his own. I'm not sure he quite did that. Twice he said that we're going to have 200,000 people dead in this country before the end of the year, which is about you know less than 10 weeks away. And I don't know any scientist who's saying that. He blamed Donald Trump for every one of the 220,000 American deaths, which is obviously unfair. If you, if you blame Trump for that, you have to blame leaders in Britain for those deaths in Spain and Italy and, all, and the like. I didn't think Biden did very well. 
He had one very effective answer when President Trump brought up the laptop from hell. He said, uh, you, you can see my taxes. You see, I haven't taken any money from any foreign government ever, and you can see my taxes, and we haven't seen your taxes yet. And Trump responded with the lamest of answers. He said, well, we're preparing. You'll see them soon, which is what he said in 2015 in the early debates. He still hasn't released his taxes. The New York Times gave us some of them. And as Jonathan Chait pointed out in New York Magazine, the Republicans haven't even accused Joe Biden of tax evasion. So he, he kind of handled that question well, I thought. Mohammed, we're just uh, now 11 days from the election. Uh, as we said, 50 million people have already voted. Are there really enough undecided voters left out there, especially in the swing states, for either side to convince those undecided voters? Or at this point, is this really a get out the base election? And so the point of the debate, at least, was to speak to your base, get them out and increase turnout. That's a great question, um, Andy. And i you know, pretty much agree with uh, Tom and Carl on their assessments of the debate. But I think the most important thing that happened last night was that the game for the World Series got rescheduled and wasn't running at the same time as the debate. And I say that jokingly, but seriously, because you, mean you exactly weren't watching the Giants just, game. Come on. No, but but I mean, for exactly what you just said, right? People who are um, tuning in have been tuning into these two campaigns. I don't think what happened yesterday would change anybody's mind. One of the things I asked uh, our director of U.S. research, Lydia Saad, this morning is, what, are, looking back at past debates and the polling we've done, have there been, have we seen that debates usually matter? And overwhelmingly, the answer is kind of no. Um, they haven't made a huge impact on many elections. I think the most important debate that's happened in this cycle actually was probably between the vice president, uh, Pence and uh, Senator Harris, because a lot of people probably didn't know much about Senator Harris and tuned in and kind of learned who that person is. But when you think about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, these are two people that are very well known. We are in an election where 70% of Americans say it matters more than up the average election in their lifetime. That's way higher than anything we've seen. Going back to the 90s, it, you know, it's down to like the 40s and 50s. So people are tuned in. Uh, they're focused. I don't think a lot of people are still undecided. Just as, as, a, as a citizen, I didn't walk away yesterday feeling like anything fundamentally changed. Carl, on this topic of the Biden emails, it was actually Biden who broached it first, which was sort of interesting last night. He, he sort of appended it to this answer he was making about foreign meddling in the U.S. elections. And he introduced the topic by saying, quote, his buddy, referring to the president, Rudy Giuliani, he's been used as a Russian pawn. He's been fed information that is Russian, that is not true. So I think you said that you thought it was a defective response to turn it on to Trump, but he didn't answer the question. And I wonder if the question will be raised again. And do you think this issue has any legs? Andy, I'm glad you came back to that. When I thought it was effective to bring up the taxes of, uh, I thought that was a nice pirouette for Biden to bring up Trump's taxes because what Biden's saying is I've never accepted money. You know, he would have to then be a tax cheat because he's never report. I'm sure he's never reported any money from the Chinese or the Ukrainians. So I thought that was smart. But in terms of this Russian thing, that that is strange, Andy. You're right. Not only does it not answer the question, it's bizarre. I can see why he'd want to bring Giuliani into it, and I haven't even seen the new Borat movie, but. This idea that this is Russian disinformation, that itself is disinformation. It's a, it's a political talking point. And you had these, these former uh, CIA directors who are on cable news 
bashing Trump every day of the year, say that, that this had the earmarks or smelled like Russian disinformation. I mean, that's ludicrous. There's no evidence for this. And for the first time in four years, I actually felt for Trump when he said, yeah, Russia, Russia, Russia. Reminds me of that great line in All the President's Men when Woodward and Bernstein make a mistake early in the reporting. And Ben Bradley says, you did something I didn't think was possible. You made Richard Nixon look sympathetic. That's what this Russian thing does to me. It it opens this whole can of worms. To use that so cynically in this case, I would think it would make an open-minded person wonder if the whole Russian investigation and the Ukrainian thing, that the Democrats were playing it cynically, that they knew none of it was true. I agree with you. I found it disturbing. I wish Biden would stop saying it. Whether he's going to have to come clean between now and the election or come up with another line, I thought the taxes line was good. But this Russia thing is just strange. Tom, what do you think? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. That's not the right answer. Yeah, on I know. Podcast, I know, right. You, know. Uh, you had this press conference last night, right, where Tony Bobulinski, who's Hunter Biden's ex-business partner, you know, read a statement, didn't take any questions, but right before the debate, Fox was the only station to carry it. None of the other networks did. You've had the media go sort of out of their way to circle the wagons around this story and and Biden applying standards now that they haven't applied for the last four years about anything, literally, to now say, well, these you can't verify this. We're not going to waste our time covering it. It's not a story. It's a distraction. It's whatever. It's like if a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear it? Does it make a sound? It'll still be an issue between now and Election Day because Trump's going to raise it and folks on conservative media are going to raise it. But whether it becomes you know, salient to the point of moving any voters, I don't know. I don't suspect the press is going to be hounding Joe Biden and asking him this question and only this question between now and election. So in that sense, I just don't know that it's going to rise to the level of salience in the minds of voters that aren't already decided. Because again, we're talking about a small slice of folks in a very few number of states that are going to end up deciding this election. I got a question, Andy. Could Joe Biden this morning on Friday declare a lid until November 3rd and just <laughs> and still win the election? What do you think, Mohammed? Look, I, I don't think that... Let me just go back to the data here. 72% of Americans think that corruption is widespread in government. And when they say that, we know from other polling, they mean national government, not local government. Americans pretty much are very impressed and supportive of local government. So as a nonpartisan analyst, I love the fact that I can just openly say that when people say corruption is widespread in government, you can fill in some of the allegations that President Trump has faced uh, over you know, the past four years of his businesses. You could also point to what he referenced with regards to the vice president's son in Ukraine. Um, most Americans, I think, unfortunately, at this point, are so disappointed in the process that that's not surprising. And I think very few people will be really focused on that. It, it, we're almost at a point now where the average American assumes that that's what's happening, frankly, on both sides. The other challenge with this, though, is the reporting part. You know, what is different today than when, for example, Nixon was uh, resigning is then seven, ten, seven in 10 Americans trusted uh, basically the veracity of the news they had access to in the country. Today, only four in 10 share that view. So you're in an environment where most people think national government is has widespread corruption and they don't have trust in the people who are supposed to be reporting on and exposing that corruption. So not to sound too jaded, honestly, but I think that when you look at the data, none of the allegations that were thrown across the podium 
would surprise anyone on either side or change their mind about what they already assume about the process. We know that Americans have two things on their mind when they vote traditionally. It's the economy and healthcare. Ironically, this time, those two issues are kind of one and the same. And that's, I think, what makes this election particularly challenging to predict. I understand what you're saying, Mohammed. Certainly, people expect at this point a fair amount of corruption in government. But Biden has made it a big theme of his campaign, and he sort of opened with it last night, that this is about character, and not just about his character, but the national character. You know, in this this sort of position he's taken, where you know me, I've been around for a long time, basically he's running as the anti-Trump. This feels pretty Trumpy in terms of a level of family uh, sliminess that I think fights that narrative, at least. And so, Carl, one more time, do you think that there are enough undecided voters, and it wouldn't take many in these swing states, who would look at this and say, gee, you know, maybe I don't know Biden? Well, yeah. Andy, you've asked actually a two-part question. First, are there enough undecided voters for this to make a difference? I don't know, but I doubt it. But, but your other question, if there were, would this be troubling to them? Yes, it would be. And, and for the reasons that you cited, Joe Biden is, is making character an issue. And it reminds me, you know, when, when Jimmy Carter was president, he was challenged in the 1980 primaries by Ted Kennedy, his own party. And Jimmy Carter said, I'll whip his ass to Ted Kennedy. And he did whip his ass in the primaries. <laughs> and Teddy was up two to one in the polls and Carter got to work and beat him and won the nomination. But it was a controversy. And, you know, it shouldn't have surprised anybody. This guy, he was a naval officer. He, he knows how to swear. It was pretty mild, really. But Jimmy Carter presented himself as this evangelical Christian who read the Bible in Spanish every night. It seemed to cut against his persona. It made people wonder, gee, do I really know this guy? That's the danger, I think, for this Biden thing. You've hit on it, Andy. Joe Biden's presenting himself as different from Donald Trump. You know, four years ago, remember, this kept coming up because the Clintons used this against Trump's dirty, and they point to Trump University, which was a scam. It wasn't even a university. It was just a scam. Uh, And then it turns out Bill Clinton had a no-show job for a four-paid university, paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to do nothing. And and he thought, wait a minute, it's the same grift, this Bill Clinton and Donald Trump? And I don't think people want that. People who support Biden want him to be different. And that's the risk. And I think the media that's pulling for Biden sees that that's the risk that you identify, which is why they're either alternating between not covering the story or pissing all over it. And I think the Biden campaign is a little worried about what you, for exactly the reasons you said, which is why they're stonewalling it and introducing canards like Giuliani and and Russia. But the basic thing is, are there still enough people out there who haven't made up their mind? That's hard for me to believe that there are. Well, I want to turn to this Gallup poll that got a lot of attention, deserved it in my view. That's the question that you ask, which is uh, the Ronald Reagan question I always think of it as, are you better off than you were four years ago? 56% of your respondents said yes. And that would sound like a good number and a good number for the president, but is it? And tell me about this number. Absolutely. Traditionally, it would be a good number for the president. Again, I think this is gets right to why this election is so different because we usually have uh, one, maybe two really salient issues uh, that stand out. Of course, the economy is always huge. President Trump's ratings on the economy have consistently been his strongest. So when Americans say that they're better off, it caused pause for us. So we looked into the data. Obviously, a lot of what drove that number up really is just a solidifying of the Republican side and a few independents 
going up as well. But there are a lot of other really key questions we ask around elections, uh, like does the incumbent deserve to be reelected? And when you look at that number, that's at 43, which is basically exactly Trump's approval rating as of now in our data. Uh, 56% of Americans say that he doesn't deserve to be reelected. So it's it's an important statistic. I think with so much happening right now in the country in terms of just changes to the way we live our lives, there could be a lot of reasons why uh, people would feel like they're better off than four years ago. Um, obviously, a lot of people have reasons to feel that they're not. The key is for those people that do feel better off, do they... Um, attribute that to the leadership coming out of the White House vis-a-vis their decision and their, on their vote uh, for president. And I don't think when you look at the other metrics around that, you can assume that, as is in a traditional year, people that basically means the other president's doing a great job. Because when you ask more specific questions about how he's doing his job, um, he's definitely below the 50-point mark on every single metric except, um, except the economy. So, Tom, first of all, what, what do you make of this 56% approval rating, and, and what do you think of Mohammed's discussion of it? I agree with it. It's it, When that number came out, it was a pretty shocking, attention-grabbing. A lot of people, you know, because it's the highest that I think they've ever seen. And how could that be when, when you have a president who is trailing as far as he's trailing in the polls? And I think Mohammed is right. Sean Trendy talked about this on the podcast, I think, last week about – you know, job approval being the metric that correlates closest to eventual presidential outcomes. He also mentioned, and I'll re-mention it now, which is we have this really interesting dynamic where in our real clear politics, national uh, average, Trump's polling at 42.8%. His job approval rating in our real clear uh, average is 44.4%. So who are these people, these, you know, roughly 2% of people who approve of the job he's doing, but aren't say they're not going to vote for him. Are they voting for someone else? Are they, you know, counting themselves currently as undecided? It's, well, there, it's there's one explanation for that, Tom, is that they just don't like his temperament. And 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 they're willing to they're honestly answering the question. I think he's doing a good job of president, but, but I'm, I'm tired. still going to vote against him anyway. That well, is I'm absolutely tired, possible. I'm tired of the name calling and the rest of it and you know. Yeah. yeah, but I mean again, historically if you if and it makes complete sense, if you think the person in the office is doing a good job, you're going to vote to keep him in the office. Trump is is unique and ahistorical in so many ways, including the idea that he's never hit 50% in his job approval rating. I, historically, that's been the metric. If you get to election day and you're not at 50%, you're going to lose. I don't think that's the case with Trump. I think 46%, 47% could be good enough for Trump. I, I'm not sure that where he's at right now, 44.4%, I, I don't think that might be good enough for him. He might need it a point or two higher, but so I think there are a lot of things about this election and Trump in particular that are unique and could produce some some very potentially shocking outcomes. Can Andy, we... can I add to that yeah. really quick to build on Tom's thought? The other really interesting or different thing about this cycle is the partisanship of the public, right? So we're seeing now the partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans on presidential approval has broken 90% several times. It basically, his first three years were the most partisan that we had seen in generations. His last year, this year, is the most partisan we've ever captured on record. So in addition to what Tom said, the people actually receiving these messages now 
and are reacting to them and potentially voting are living in a hyper-partisan environment. So it could explain why he doesn't hit 50%, for example. And it really highlights the importance of what is going to happen in these swing states. Carl? Yeah, I, I was. that's what I was thinking. And I, the, the question, I want to return to this group, because if this election tightens the way, the way it did last time, and these people who grudgingly give Donald Trump credit for doing a good job in office or like his policies more than they like him, those are going to be the maybe the, the voters who determine the election. It makes perfect sense to me, though, why you would why a voter um, responding to Muhammad's polls who was being conscientious, a, a respondent to a poll would say, yeah, I, I give him a positive job approval rating, but I'm not going to vote for him. It, it'd be like if you had a team you root for, a baseball team, and there was a guy on your team uh, that you didn't like his bat flips, you didn't like the interviews he gave, you didn't like his politics, you didn't like the fact that he runs down his manager and starts fights in the clubhouse and fights on the field with the opponents and his own teammates and drunk driving arrests. And you just all the, you think, all right, he's a good player, but I'm tired of him. I'm tired of the way he acts. And to me, if you have a two or 3% of the electorate who that's where they're at, that's a pretty sensible viewpoint. And I understand why they would just say, all right, I'm going to turn the page. I'm going to vote for the other guy. So Tom, let's just talk about the swing states then for a minute. Tell us what's the latest uh, numbers. Where is it tightening? Where is it not tightening? Again, we're sort of focused on the big six, right? Which is Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Biden's average lead right now is four points in those swing states. Hillary Clinton four years ago was at 3.8. So Biden's doing just basically the same, maybe a tick better. But it, you know, the last round of polls, we've seen some tightening in Florida. Uh, we've seen some tightening in uh, North Carolina, but Biden has extended his lead uh, in Pennsylvania to over 5%. He's at about 4.5% in Wisconsin. And it's almost eight points in Michigan. So we're going to have to continue to watch and see. Trump is currently behind. I mean, there's no question, even if he overperformed his polls in the same way he did in 2016, it wouldn't be enough uh, for him to win enough of these states to, to win re-election. So I think he's got to see more closure in some of these battleground states to put him in a position where this is a could be a repeat of 2016. But right now, if the election were held tomorrow... And our polls are are accurate, and they may be, they may not be. But if they were, he'd lose, and he'd lose pretty handily. Well, um, guys, that's great. Um, that's really, not, that's it. not a good thing to end on. Come on, Andy. Okay, <laughs> Carl, what do you want to say about the World Series? Uh, well, I mentioned bat flips the, uh, a moment ago, so everybody's thinking about baseball. Well, you know, the World Series resumes. You have this super team, the Dodgers, which are an all-star team, basically, against this upstart Tampa Bay uh, Bucks. And I guess it's, is it, I don't want to carry that. It's not the Bucks. Who did I say? You said the Bucks. Uh, oh, Tampa, Tampa, Tampa Bay Rays. I don't want to carry the metaphor too far because one's red state and one's a blue state, but and one's got all the money in the world and the other give very good little chance. But, you know, we watch baseball for the same reason that sometimes we follow these elections, is that you really don't know what's going to happen. And- that you know, if we did know what was going to happen, we wouldn't be interested in it. So, I'm not going to call it yet. Yeah, exactly. I would just uh, say, you know, at Gallup, we're neutral and nonpartisan since the 1930s. But I'm from LA, <laughs> and when it comes to the Dodgers, I got to say, I'm, I'm praying for the Dodgers. Uh, we'll leave it there. So, this has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 23rd. 
I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and Mohammed Yunus from Gallup. If you want to find out more, check out realclearpolitics.com. And as ever, thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.